I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, John Fabian Witt. John Fabian Witt is Alan H. Duffy Class of 1960 Professor of Law at Yale Law School. He is the author of widely acclaimed works in the history of American law and in torts, including Patriots and Cosmopolitans, Hidden Histories of American Law, which explores law and nationhood at key moments in American history from the founding to the Cold War, and the prize-winning book, The Accidental Republic, Crippled Working Men, Destitute Widows, and the Remaking of American Law. He is currently writing a book on the laws of war in American history from the revolution to the turn of the 20th century. Professor Witt is a graduate of Yale Law School and Yale College, and he holds a PhD in history from Yale. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. John Fabian Witt. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. It is a real delight to be here at Zocalo. This is a great institution that I'm just getting to, to know more about. I want to come to each and every one of the events that uh, Gregory just introduced. I look forward to um, getting to spend uh, more, more time with, with Zocalo. I'm enormously grateful to, to, uh, to Gregory for putting this together and to Bill Deverell and his institute, the extraordinary Institute of California and the West at uh, the Huntington Library uh, and, um, and USC. What I want to talk to you today about uh, is uh, a story that I've come to in the course of the last three or four years as I've been writing a book about the history of the laws of war uh, in America. Uh, and it's a book that I've been, in some sense, working on ever since uh, my wife Annie and I watched the second plane hit the World Trade Center from our Greenwich Street, New York apartment in 2001. Um, and ever since 2001, now for a decade, uh, the laws of war have become central to American political conversation. It's an enormous source of controversy uh, um, uh, for, for American politicians right and left alike. Uh, and I think over the last decade, we've come to tell ourselves two stories about the laws of war in American history, two stories uh, that have made various constituencies feel good uh, about their positions, but I think there are two stories that are deeply flawed and... Um, uh, and so tonight I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, um, uh, my research and why I think they're too flawed. Here are the two stories. One story is the story of the center left. The center left imagines that since uh, September 11th, 2001, there's been a rupture in traditional American values. Once upon a time, the United States uh, looked to international law and adhered to international law, and then something happened and there was a rupture. So the American values uh, have, been, have been violated. This is a happy story for, uh, uh, for a constituency that would like for there to be a historical legacy that we can stand on uh, to support a particular set of values uh, in a moment of crisis. Uh, there's another story, uh, let's call it the center-right story. The center-right story is also a story about rupture. It's also a story about a kind of great disruption. But here the rupture is a different one. The rupture here is that recently, suddenly, in our time, there's been a new set of interferences with, obstructions to, the advancement of the purposes and the, the goals of, of, uh, of the United States. And this interruption, these obstacles, are created by a new international law, which is a product of the post-World War II period, accelerating in the 1970s, uh, and that this is the new feature of our politics in wartime. Uh, now, these stories, you'll notice, are deeply at odds with one another. One imagines that international law extends back deep into our past. The other imagines that international law is a current feature of our politics and not a traditional one. Uh, this alone would make one dispirited about the historical conversation we're having about the laws of war. These two stories, which circulate widely and are widely thought of uh, and accepted by two very different constituencies, to be sure, are deeply at odds with one another. I think it's even worse than that. I think they're both 
wrong. It's not that one is right and the other is wrong. They're both uh, uh, deeply flawed. And tonight what I want to talk to you about is an episode uh, in the long history of a controversy that's been ongoing since the founding. Um, An episode from the Mexican War, a tribute to Bill's Institute uh, for California and the West, Uh, uh, but an episode from the Mexican War that gets at the core organizing dilemma in the history and architecture of the modern laws of war, and an episode that I think fundamentally changed those laws and invented the idea of the modern war crime in the process. Uh, In February February and March of uh, 1847, Winfield Scott arrived with 20,000 American volunteers uh, on the east coast uh, of Mexico. Uh, for three quarters of a year, uh, the war, the Mexican War had been going on, and at its start, there were great hopes for a war that would be fought in, in compliance with and in adherence to the civilized laws of war. For the officer class, the small officer class trained at West Point, this is an extraordinary opportunity. Wars for this officer class, this officer group, were largely uh, battles fought with Indians on the frontier or in the, the, uh, the old Southwest, battles in which the European laws of war had no uh, significant application. But now at last, there was the opportunity to fight traditional European-style warfare. And so Z- uh, Zachary Taylor, uh, a general Zachary Taylor in command of U.S. forces in northern Mexico and his Mexican counterpart at the outset of the war declared their uh, admiration for the law of war tradition and carried on conflicts in ways that complied largely with the traditional laws of war as they were set out in European treatises from the 17th and 18th century. Truce flags allowed for communication between the sides. There were prisoner uh, of war exchanges. Prisoners were paroled. The laws of war looked like they were in full effect. Uh, But as Scott arrived in Mexico in early 1847, things were deteriorating. Uh, uh, Partly this was because uh, of racial differences. Uh, uh, um, uh, The the, the 73,000 volunteers who served in the Mexican War um, uh, brought with them a set of uh, racial views about Mexicans that helped helped, uh, cause breakdown in the reciprocity uh, of the laws of war. But partly it was because of the untrained nature of these 73,000 volunteers. The, the The West Point uh, a core of officers was a tiny group. Most, peop- most of the uh, volunteers were largely untrained. And this resulted in a, a, um, a sort of a digression here would be you know, the Second Amendment is part of our law of war history. It's a commitment to fighting with non-professional soldiers, which has serious consequences for, um, uh, for, for the laws of war. And we see that happening uh, in, in Mexico in the, first, in the first year of the war with the, the, uh, uh, the volunteer the volunteer army. But the result of this is that volunteers like the, the famous uh, Philadelphia unit made up most of all, mostly of a gang locally known to Philadelphians as the Killers, uh, transported to Mexico, uh, engage in a wide array of depredations, uh, murders, rapes, uh, theft, uh, depredations that had begun even before they arrived in Mexico, but then continued uh, after they arrived. Zachary Taylor, in the middle of 1846, is starting to worry that he's getting a lawless set of of volunteers. By the middle of 1847, he's convinced that many of them, not all of them, but many of them, are, as he said, goddamned thieves and cowards. Uh, Lieutenant George Meade, who would one day be the commander of the Army of the Potomac in the American Civil War, described the volunteers serving under him as goths and vandals. And Winfield Scott, the general-in-chief of the the United States Army, uh, uh, described the depredations being committed by American volunteers as depredations uh, that would make any Christian blush for his country. 
Um, now, much of the lawlessness was by U.S. volunteers, but there was Mexican lawlessness too. There are six presidential changes in Mexico during the two years of the war, and in the power vacuum, uh, a, a huge amount of crime uh, uh, begins uh, to be committed. But it's mostly private crime. That is to say, it's mostly uh, private citizens in the, in the first uh, nine months of the war, let's say. It's mostly private citizens committing uh, theft and crime uh, and, and murders against U.S. soldiers who find themselves uh, straying from their, uh, from, their, from their comrades. But in early 1847, the nature of uh, this Mexican violence changed. Uh, and it changed because the Mexican government decided to adopt a new, a new strategy. After nine months of losing set-piece battles in which their badly outmatched uh, army uh, w was uh, repeatedly defeated, uh, the Mexican government decided to take up a new set of guerrilla strategies, strategies that they modeled, uh, that, that were modeled after the Spanish resistance to Napoleon in 1807 and 1808 on the Iberian Peninsula, uh, a Spanish resistance that's memorialized famously in Goya's extraordinary uh, paintings of, of executions, which I'm sure many of you um, uh, have seen. Um, uh, in early 1847, uh, Mexican President Pedro Anaya made an official call uh, for commissioning guerrilla units, or light corps, as he called them. Uh, and for the next, for, and for the rest of the war, uh, guerrilla tactics aiming to disrupt United States operations became central to the Mexican strategy in the war. Uh, attacks on wagon trains are the classic in the Mexican War guerrilla tactic. So there's a long supply line that goes from Veracruz on the coast to Mexico City on the interior. That after the fall of 1847, Winfield Scott needs to keep open, and extraordinary attacks occur on. Um uh, on, on these wagon trains. One famous attack involves more than 100 wagons, more than 300 mules, uh, and, a, and a large group of United States soldiers uh, defending them. They're so quickly surrounded by guerrillas and have to surrender without even a fight. The, what the guerrilla attacks did was they disrupted Winfield Scott's operations. They also involved a certain kind of violence, which was horrific to uh, the, the United States soldiers who watched it. So the United States soldiers were taken prisoner and treated relatively well, as most United States soldiers seem to have been treated by uh, Mexican commissioned, uh, uh, by commissioned soldiers in the Mexican army. But the Mexican teamsters driving the wagons, who are Mexican citizens, were, after all, traitors and criminals, as viewed by the Mexican army, and so they were executed on the spot. The wagons were burned after being looted, uh, and the bodies of the Mexican teamsters uh, uh, left on the wagons to burn along with them. Um, the other strategy guerrillas used very effectively was to attack stragglers. Uh, so guerrillas would lurk in the chaparral and, and uh, 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 leap out, seizing stragglers uh, uh, and, uh, and killing them. Uh, and the, this is stragglers from the uh, United States Army. Uh, for the volunteer American army, this caused outrage uh, to no end. And the relatively untrained uh, 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 volunteers began to commit many of the same kinds of retaliatory uh, uh, acts that Napoleon's army had committed in Spain in 1807 and 1808. Uh, in particular, groups like the Texas Rangers, the infamous Texas Rangers, who uh, uh, were, were most notorious for committing depredations in Mexico, or the Arkansas militia would gather up, uh, would round up local Mexican men and boys uh, and kill dozens of them at a time uh, in, uh, in retaliatory in retaliatory efforts. Um, by the middle of 1847, this is causing a downward spiral of violence and retaliation. Uh, one Mexican ob observer described desolation and death reduced to a system along roads wherever U.S. forces were in Mexico. Uh, now, Winfield Scott, uh, in early 1847, was the very best 
general the United States could have sent into this situation. In some ways, he was the David Petraeus of the 1840s, Petraeus being the general who's organized counterinsurgency strategy around an idea of fighting wars against populations that could flip either way. This is exactly the situation Scott finds himself in in Mexico in 1847. He'd been trained initially as a lawyer. Uh, In the War of 1812, Scott had been captured by the British, almost killed by uh, Indian allies of the British and rescued by a, a British officer. And then while in captivity, Scott had served as the U.S. representative for prisoner uh, uh, exchanges and prisoner treatment uh, with with the British. Uh, After the war, he'd gone to Europe. After the War of 1812, he'd gone to Europe, observed European military operations, written a drill, and and, and a military drill manual that became uh, widespread, was in widespread use in the antebellum American army, uh, and then became the general-in-chief of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's highest-ranking officer. Um, even before Scott got to Mexico, he'd started to study Napoleon's late failures uh, uh, in the, uh, in, at the end of, of Napoleon's um, uh, 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 campaigns in Europe. He'd studied Napoleon's catastrophic invasion of Russia and the uh, even more catastrophic retreat. Uh, and he'd spent a special amount of time with Napoleon's uh, operations in the Iberian Peninsula and the problem of guerrilla warfare there and the problem of, of fighting a war in which a population is roused against an occupation occupying army. And as he studied Napoleon's late troubled uh, campaigns, Scott realized that he had what I've come to think of as a discipline deficit in Mexico. Uh, He looked at the law at his disposal, and he realized that the United States Congress had never given the United States military the authority to prosecute even its own soldiers Uh, when they were outside of the United States. U.S. soldiers committing crimes against the civilian population uh, under the Articles of War enacted most recently in 1806 uh, had to be sent to state authorities for prosecution. But if you were in Mexico, there were no state authorities to send U.S. soldiers to. Maybe the Articles of War had been especially jealous of American constitutional procedure, criminal procedure rights for American soldiers and had wanted to send them to civil courts, but there were no American civil courts to send soldiers to. At one epi- in one episode late in 1846, Zachary Taylor writes uh, back to President James Polk and Secretary of War William Marcy and says, I have a volunteer who's killed a Mexican soldier after combat has ended. What do I do with him? I don't know how to, how to, how to, how to deal with, um, with this, with this uh, offense against the laws of war. And Marcy and Polk wrote, you're just going to have to send him back to the United States and let him go free. The state courts won't have any authority over his crime because it wasn't committed in their jurisdiction, and you don't have the legal authority to engage in any prosecution. Now, Taylor meekly sent the the man back, but for Scott, this was an outrage. There was no way he was going to be able to have control and discipline over his forces if he did exactly what it was that the discontented soldier most wanted which was to send him home. Uh, so even before Scott goes to Mexico, he's pushing uh, uh, Polk and Marcy to get legislation through Congress that will extend to commanders in Mexico the authority to carry out uh, uh, military commissions uh, or courts martial. The problem is the courts martial jurisdiction, which exists, doesn't extend to U.S. soldiers uh, committing crimes uh, abroad. So he asks for an extension of the, the court martial jurisdiction. Uh, uh, the Congress declines to do this. It says... Polk already has the authority under the laws of war to do it himself. Polk says, I don't have the authority to do it. And so Polk has to, uh, and so Scott has to step in and do it himself. And so in early 1847, he takes matters into his own hands. Uh, and in February, from Tampico on the east coast uh, of, of Mexico, he issues an order, general order number 20. 
Uh, and what General Order Number 20 does uh, is it creates military commissions. And it creates military commissions as a solution to the twin problems of U.S. volunteer depredations in Mexico and guerrilla warfare. Uh, over the course of the next year and a half, uh, Scott's military commissions prosecute more than 300 U.S. soldiers uh, who are prosecuted for things like murder, rape, the desecration of churches and robbery, uh, and the destruction of private property. The military commissions also prosecute Mexican inhabitants. General Orders Number 20 purported to take jurisdiction not just over U.S. soldiers, but also inhabitants of Mexico. Uh, and General Orders Number 20 and the military commissions help contribute to, in the post-war period, a kind of mythology of the chivalry of the United States' uh, uh, um, uh, conduct in Mexico. Uh, uh, William Marcy, the Secretary of War after the war is over, uh, celebrates and crows about the extraordinary adherence to the laws of war, unparalleled, he thinks. Uh, in modern history that the United States has shown. And it's, it's Scott's efforts to build the laws of war into the military commissions that Marcy's most proud of. But there's a feature of Scott's military commissions that's, uh, that has, has evaded the attention of the historians and I think puzzled historians and international lawyers alike. And the problem is, what jurisdiction did Scott have to prosecute not U.S. soldiers, not inhabitants of Mexico who came into United States jurisdiction under military law and martial law, but commissioned Mexican soldiers, that is, that is commissioned soldiers of the enemy army. Uh, in international law, uh, enemy soldiers are protected by prisoner of war status. Uh, uh, and and what, what uh, Scott did was to create a jurisdiction that, that made serious incursions, I'll try to argue over the next couple minutes, on that traditional prisoner of war status. At first, Scott was quite clear that his military commissions did not implicate the public forces of the Mexican army. The word inhabitants, which he'd used in the initial General Orders Number 120, was a term of art in military law and excluded the public forces of the enemy. And later on, Scott made quite clear that when he said inhabitants, he did not mean Mexican soldiers. As late as October 1847, Secretary of War William Marcy is committing himself and the United States to the prisoner of war status of guerrillas, um, of commissioned guerrillas in the Mexican armed forces. But late in the fall of 1847, we see a change, and the change, seem, the change seems to happen first on the ground and only later on paper. We see anti-guerrilla forces in the United States Army beginning to conduct field tribunals, drumhead courts martial or drumheads military commissions, uh, and executing, uh, um, uh, as criminals, commissioned Mexican guerrillas. Uh, Winfield Scott himself formalizes this in December of 1847 in another general order, General Order uh, number 372. And General Order 372 describes, redescribes guerrillas not as commissioned soldiers, not as entitled to prisoner of war status, but instead as atrocious bands, guerrilleros, rancheros, uh, that were violating every rule of warfare observed by civilized nations. Uh, many of these guerrillas were acting under the commission uh, of, the, of, of the Mexican government, but Scott no longer made this distinction. Whether serving under Mexican commissions or not, General Order 372 uh, uh, ordered, uh, such guerrillas were to be sent before what Scott now styled as councils of war, a special form of military commission, uh, for summary trial and punishment according to the known laws of war. The, the councils of war are a mysterious and ephemeral uh, uh, institution. We have lots of records of military commissions from the Mexican War. The councils of war, though, are, are extraordinarily thin in the historical record. Um, uh, the leading scholars of the councils of war have been unable to find transcripts or records of any 
councils of war prosecuting guerrilla or law of war violations. But as far as we can tell from the traces of evidence on the historical record, there were indeed any number of councils of war held to prosecute guerrillas. A man named William Winthrop was the, the leading expert in the United States in late 19th century military law. He was a, a member of the U.S. Army's fledgling lawyer corps. And Winthrop, who had good reason to know what he was talking about, uh, his colleagues, he was not in the Mexican War, but many of his colleagues uh, no doubt uh, had been. Winthrop says the councils of war prosecuted uh, guerrillas for violations of the laws of war. And we have anecdotes in memoirs from people like General Joseph Lane, who describes himself as having punished guerrillas for violation of the laws of war. Uh, and we have a record of an, a U.S. officer who was punished for not using a council of war in executing a Mexican guerrilla. So we have good reason to think, even though we can't find any of these things, that councils of war uh, were prosecuting Mexican guerrillas. But in doing this, in prosecuting commissioned soldiers from the Mexican army, Scott ran headlong into the basic uh, conceptual architecture of the modern laws of war. And let me try to explain this. So for, for, uh, a, for a millennium, uh, um, from Augustine in the 5th century well into the early modern period, the basic structure of the Western laws of war was organized around a just war framework in which people were entitled to kill in warfare if they were engaged in a just war. The great move of the 18th century, of the Enlightenment in the laws of war, was to readjust this basic tradition. The problem with this tradition was that everybody was convinced that their side was just. <coughs> Uh, and in the case of everyone being convinced that their side was just and the other side unjust, uh, the laws of war and the just war tradition were a license for destruction uh, uh, and, and violence uh, of virtually unlimited kinds. Uh, and so the 18th century move, the Enlightenment move, was to, as one Swiss jurist from the middle of the 18th century put it, account both sides as just. Each side would be treated as if it were just, not because it was just, God would know, which side was just and which side wouldn't, but we couldn't figure it out. And the only way to create constraints on the means that were available to the contending armies, means that would, means limits, legal limits on means that would stick, was to get the contending armies to bracket the question of who was right. This is the basic Enlightenment move. It's the, it's the Enlightenment move that underwrites the array of hard and fast rules that constitute the basic structure of the modern laws of war today. If you look at the Geneva Conventions of 1949, they are an extraordinarily intricate set of rules, which are hard and fast rules that ask uh, armies to engage in particular forms of conduct or not engage in particular forms of conduct without regard to the goals of the war or without, and without regard to the ends in question and without regard to each contending army's vision of what justice consists of. Um, that decision to bracket justice for humanitarian purposes, we could think of as the separation of justice and humanity, that it consists of which the basic structure of the modern laws of war consists. And it's what underwrites the idea of POW status. The prisoner of war is not a criminal. In Augustine's just war framework, of course, the, the prisoner of war was essentially a criminal. There might, you might develop a set of immunity rules that say, well, yeah, he was acting under the command of a king, who, uh, an enemy king, who was in fact committing the basic crime. So we might not prosecute for a variety of conventional reasons, but the enemy soldier engaged in the unjust uh, war was essentially engaged in an elaborate criminal act. And the, the Enlightenment approach is to, to, to separate that justice framework uh, from, uh, 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 from the conduct uh, of, of, of the war. Um, 
even violations, and what's striking about this is even violations in the strongest enlightenment uh, uh, form, even violations of the laws of war are not themselves punishable by an enemy army. Uh, uh, a sovereign himself has the authority to punish the crimes against the laws of war of his own soldiers, but the enemy does not. Now, this did not mean for a second that the enemy had to put up with violations of the laws of war. Don't, 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 don't uh, have any confusion on this front. But the structure of an enemy's response was through, the, uh, pro, was through the idea of retaliation. Retaliation allowed an enemy to punish the acts of its uh, enemy sovereign, acts that of course could only happen through the soldiers the enemy sovereign uh, um, uh, employed. And retaliation allowed you to either retaliate against the particular soldier who'd committed an infraction against the laws of war, or to retaliate against anyone of the soldiers of the enemy army. The Enlightenment uh, 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 jurists encouraged retaliation against the particular soldier who happened to uh, have committed the violation, but didn't, certainly didn't require it, since after all, oftentimes that particular soldier wouldn't be available uh, to, uh, to an enemy. So the, the Enlightenment model is you retaliate, but you don't punish. You retaliate, but you don't punish. And why you do that? Because of the separation, the sharp separation between justice and humanity. Now, what Winfield Scott was doing in creating councils of war that would punish violations of the laws of war in a criminal law model in which the project of the tribunal was to identify the guilt of the person before him was pushing humanity and justice back together again. Uh, um, he was... Scott was bringing punishment back into the post-Enlightenment laws of war. The United States had never done anything exactly like this. There are a series of similar kinds of tribunals, but they're all critically different. Uh, spies had long been subject to execution uh, under the laws of war, but spying was not a criminal act. We know this because if the spy got back to his lines, he wasn't subsequently punishable by the enemy on whom he was spying if that enemy should capture him later on in some non-spying capacity. The spying rule is a little bit like a game in which you can be killed for having been a spy, um, but it's not that you're a criminal. You're actually, in some ways, engaged in the honorable pursuit of the ends of your sovereign state. Here, the classic case is the case of Major John Andre uh, in, in the uh, American Revolution. Um, uh, and Andre is, is executed, hanged uh, as, as a spy, but, but it's not as a criminal, not as a criminal, it's as a spy, which was importantly, importantly different. Another important uh, uh, early uh, um, uh, example of something coming close to this is Andrew Jackson's execution of two Englishmen he finds in the woods of Florida in 1818, two fellows uh, named Ambrister and Arbuthnot, uh, whom he executes for participating in uh, the First Seminole War. But here, too, the case isn't exactly parallel to what Scott does in Mexico. Ambrister and Arbuthnot were not commissioned soldiers uh, of the English uh, state fighting in a war that England was engaged in uh, uh, with the United States. Great Britain was not at war with the United States. Uh, and so uh, uh, Jackson's uh, execution of Ambrister and Arbuthnot is really quite different. Uh, and, and moreover, uh, had produced, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with this uh, Ambrister-Arbuthnot episode, Jackson's execution of Ambrister and Arbuthnot produces two months of debate on the floor of Congress about whether or not to sanction Jackson for having violated, censure Jackson for having violated the laws of war. Two months of conflict uh, and debate that are sponsored by Henry Clay, Jackson's uh, future political rival and 
Clay already knows that they're going to be future political rivals. Um, uh, and the, this is the kind of episode that the history of uh, the, the American history of the laws of war is full of. And this is the kind of episode that we've seen for the last 10 years, uh, huge amounts of debate in our politics about the laws of war. And it's a debate that goes back uh, um, far more than a, a century uh, and, and a half. Um, so there really are no precedents on all fours with what Scott does in Mexico. The United States was instead really the first to institutionalize the practice of councils of war prosecuting four crimes, not retaliating for acts of the sovereign, but prosecuting four crimes, individuals of the enemy, uh, commissioned soldiers from an enemy army. And the question now is why? Why would it be that the United States would have been part of, in the 1840s, innovating in this field? What's, what's the source of the innovation? Why do we see Scott uh, as the one making this move. And I think the answer here uh, arises out of a long history uh, of, of, while at the, on the one hand, being at the forefront of the humanitarian law project, uh, and being, this is the United States, and being proud of uh, being at the forefront of the humanitarian law project, but also at the same time chafing uh, at the constraints that the sharp separation between justice and humanity posed for uh, American conduct in wartime. Uh, what's dropped out of our collective memory is a raging series of debates that uh, ran through antebellum America over exactly this sharp separation between justice on the one hand and humanity on the other. Uh, for three decades, by 1846, pacifists had been uh, in a small group, but a very loud and charismatic group, pushing against not just the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the Enlightenment decision to account war as just on both sides, but even against the Augustinian idea that there could be just war at all. Uh, in the 1830s and 40s, populist politicians in the Jacksonian model uh, had been critiquing the sharp separation of justice and humanity, pushing to prosecute uh, enemy uh, soldiers, uh, well, prosecute soldiers from foreign nations for things like the, uh, violence committed in, by incursions of British soldiers across the Canadian border in the late 1830s and early 1840s. It was natural I think, in the face of these long debates, closing down or seeking to close down the separation between justice and humanity, or the compromise on which the modern laws of war were, uh, were based, it was natural for Scott to begin to close that window uh, still further, to close the gap between justice and humanity. Uh, and indeed, natural, I think, for him not even to notice exactly what it was that he was doing. Uh, and so in the process of, of closing that gap, Winfield Scott and the American army in Mexico helped to invent, or at least institutionalize, uh, the, the, the modern concept of the war crime. It's an institutionalization and invention that pays off in the Civil War where there are somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 military commissions charging law of war violations, uh, largely against uh, Confederate soldiers and Confederate guerrillas. We see its implications in World War II in which at the end of the war there are a whole series of war crimes, uh, famous war crimes tribunals, we see it in the star-crossed military commissions at Guantanamo today uh, and in the International Criminal Court uh, under the Rome Statute as well. We also see significance uh, for the American Civil War. Uh, the, um, the Civil War uh, and emancipation emancipation, which after all is pursued under the law of war authority, entailed more forcing together of the laws of war and, and its humanitarian project on the one hand with the justice project uh, on the other. For 90 years in the run-up to the American Civil War, American statesmen had announced that the key test of civilized limits in warfare was an enemy, it was an army's willingness to not free 
its enemies' slaves. Abraham Lincoln in the Emancipation Proclamation has to undo this 90 years of tradition and in what the final Emancipation Proclamation calls an act of justice, push together the humanitarian tradition of the laws of war on the one hand uh, and uh, the, the, the idea of justice on the other. Here and elsewhere, Lincoln reintroduced ends-based reasoning, reasoning with respect to the goals uh, and the justice uh, project of the war itself, resisting the hard and fast rules of the laws of war in favor of granular, highly contextual uh, uh, moral analysis that took both means and ends seriously, humanity and justice seriously considered uh, together. Now, when he did so, Lincoln was relying on a tradition that had begun decade, in, the dec- in the decades before the war, in these debates uh, over the, the separation between justice and humanity. Uh, and he's surrounded by a series of people who'd been through those debates and through the Mexican War uh, uh, as well. He starts off the war with Winfield Scott as his general-in-chief. People like Henry Halleck, who will become his general-in-chief, served in Mexico. Ethan Allen Hitchcock, a fascinating character who runs through 19th century American history, critically involved late in 18th and a student of, um, of Scott's uh, in, in the 1840s in Mexico. Also people like Charles Sumner, William Seward, and Francis Lieber, characters who are critical participants in these raging debates I've tried to describe to you here in the 1830s and 40s, who in the Civil War will be critical figures uh, in, in helping uh, forge a legal approach both to the war itself and, and to emancipation. But this is not just... Scott's problem, it's not just Lincoln's problem. I think the basic structure that I've tried to describe here is our problem too. The center left that I described at the outset imagines that our ancestors were willing to set aside their conceptions of what was right and what was wrong, what was just and what their goals were uh, in order to adhere to a set of legal limits uh, on the means to which they would resort. I think blind adherence is simply not what we see. The center right imagines that our ancestors were so focused on their ends and so confident about their ends that they were willing to ignore means limitations. But this is simply not so as well. The law of war turns out not to have been something that we simply follow or don't follow. Laws of war aren't like a stop sign or a smoking ban. Uh, Instead, the laws of war in Mexico, as in the Civil War, offered, I think, a kind of public language, a vocabulary for talking about means and ends in some of the most wrenching situations that Winfield Scott or Abraham Lincoln could possibly have found themselves in. And that, I think, is what we face today. The laws of war are functioning as a kind of practical guide to moral reasoning as we face excruciatingly difficult uh, and grave moral problems in public policy. Uh, and, And they've become a framework for the debate. Now, if we rethink the laws of war and we think about them in in, in this sense, as a public language, a vocabulary for talking about extraordinarily difficult uh, moral problems, I'd like to think, I'd like to think, that we'll have a history of the laws of war that will be much more useful moving on into the future. Both of the reigning narratives for thinking about the history of the laws of war, which are designed to produce answers now, That's what they're designed to do. They're designed to produce an answer, follow international law for the center left, reject it as not consistent with our traditions on the center right. Both of those stories, I think, threaten to break down in moments of crisis, or at least the center left one really threatens to break down in moments of crisis. And if we reimagine the history as a history of grappling with extraordinarily difficult moral problems through this language that tries to bring together means and ends in some kind of uh, uh, useful moral conversation, I think we'll have a history that gives us a better foundation for making extraordinarily difficult decisions in extraordinarily difficult moments.
I look forward to talking more and questions about, uh, about this with you. Uh, and thank you very much for, for coming. Uh, my name is Todd Kerner. Thank you for an enlightening discussion. Um, I'm curious, when you talk about justice and humanity, how would you reflect on the incidents and uh, sort of environment of post-9-11 America when you view it through the prism of those acts of 9-11 as being a act of war versus being a criminal act? Uh, so, so, so my historian's training makes me want to say, let's talk about the 19th century. But that's, but, but, but that, but that's, but that's not fair. So, so I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a leading authority on these things. But as I understand it, um, uh, but I do have, I think the 19th century has something to say about this, which I'll get to in a second. But, but, but the, the thing on which I'm not an authority is to say that it seems as if um, uh, uh, the kinds of, of, of violence um, that, that the United States is threatened with today uh, are kinds of violence that are not effectively dealt, uh, it's not possible to deal with them through a, the criminal law approaches that, that the United States has, has wanted oftentimes to, 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 to adopt. Now I say this, um, I, I also think, I'm, I'm gravely disappointed in um, uh, the pressure that Congress has put on uh, uh, the current administration uh, to keep certain uh, of the, uh, uh, the folks at Guantanamo out of civilian courts in the United States. There are uh, assistant United States attorneys in Manhattan who are extraordinarily capable people, uh, who I, I think were gonna make the United States look extremely good uh, and put to justice some, some really, really bad actors. Uh, uh, this is not gonna happen. Um, uh, and, I th and, and that would have been an interesting melding of the criminal law model with the, with the war model, and I think it's a shame that we're not gonna see that. What I think the, um, uh, the lesson of this story, I think, is that uh, almost all, all of, all of the policies we've seen since 9-11 are policies that happen inside an ongoing American tradition. There's not been a moment, not a single moment, in the, uh, uh, in the, um, uh, even in the the the, the uh, furthest excesses of Bush to the Bush two administration, um, in which there, the, um, the the policies of the of, of the United States stepped outside the kinds of things that for two hundred years American politicians and statesmen have been talking about and doing. The idea of moving a conflict outside of the laws of war is as old as the United States. It's as old as Indian fighting uh, on, on the frontier. Uh, it's what you see Winfield Scott doing uh, in Mexico, what with the guerrillas, um, uh, and, and you see it again and again through the 19th century. So, so and this is actually becoming increasingly clear as uh, uh, the current administration has been in office longer and longer. But what we're seeing is not nearly as much departure from Bush policies as many on the left expected to see in the candidate uh, for whom uh, they'd voted. And I think part of the reason for that, and my colleague Stephen Carter has a new book making this point really nicely, uh, is, that, is that actually there, there's been an Amer there are a variety of American ways of fighting war and a series of conversations that are actually coherent across time in which many different uh, 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 policies um, uh, are, are, are yoked together. So that, that's, I think, what the historical story has to say about, um, about uh, the, the 21st century. The, the situations you're describing historically are more where people go to war with their neighbor. 
um, there's some commonality or something that's uh, disputing that they almost know the other one well enough to even establish uh, a law or even, let's say, to have a conversation. Um, I'm not thinking so much about Genghis Khan running across the steps up, to, you know, as far as he could go with whatever horses were left he could ride. But w what does come to my mind is that law is very much uh, towards the issue of contract making. And the idea is then, the question is, how much of the laws today relate to contracts among nations for economic benefit one versus the other? And how does the law then uh, rule or enable benefits to come to victor or, or, or you know, conquered? You know, one very powerful and, and, uh, uh, and I take very seriously explanation for the laws of war is a reciprocity explanation. The laws of war exist on this theory uh, because there are there's, there's low-hanging fruit to be had for all participants in war. Everybody is advantaged, let's say, by the agreement not to kill the prisoners, since you could kill the prisoners, but then they'd kill the prisoners, and you have a race to the bottom. And what the laws of war allow you to do is find some kind of stable equilibrium on this view uh, in which reciprocity among, uh, among um, like-minded states can, can be achieved. Now, this is oftentimes described as a kind of cynical view of the laws of war. This is the laws of war on some views as not accomplishing much of anything. Now, this is the laws of war just accomplishing what states would want to accomplish on their own, regardless of the law. Now, I don't really see it that way. That is to say, this seems like an, extraordinarily an extraordinary accomplishment to be able to facilitate states achieving this great humanitarian accomplishment. Because after all, these equilibriums could easily come apart. And so if the laws of war can help stabilize these equilibriums, then thank goodness for the laws of war. This doesn't seem to me to have to be a, a, um, a cynical account at all. Uh, but but, but um, that said, another striking feature of the way the laws of war work is once you've used uh, um, the laws of war to achieve a, an aim, a shared aim, uh, uh, reciprocity in a moment of conflict, the law of war starts to have a life of its own. That is, it starts to create a set of norms that, that, that shape public conversation. Uh, it starts to reorganize the way people think about conflict. Uh, and so, so even if the laws of war begin, I'm riffing off of your economic idea, even if the laws of war begin with a rational contract among uh, contending sides, uh, it quickly takes on, I think, all, and uh, quickly takes on a life of its own. Uh, sometimes that life of its own has, has, uh, has bite, and sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but that's, that's the nature of, 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 of this field of the law. I was wondering if when you're looking at uh, who are the uh, folks promoting uh, laws of war and ethical ways of, of yeah. fighting a war, if you see any pattern as to, you know, the, uh, those promoters being countries that uh, bring war upon other countries or if, uh, if it's uh, mm -hmm. the countries that have war brought upon themselves uh, by others. And the reason is that, uh, yeah, it seems a little silly to me to be talking about um, you know, uh, an ethical way to fight a war uh, without questioning the war itself. And, and, uh, and we see it often, uh, whether it's uh, you know, criticizing, uh, as I'm sure they did, at the time, uh, Mexican guerrillas for, or Mexicans for, for resorting to guerrilla style uh, war, or it's uh, Native Americans, you know, fighting, uh, uh, or resisting conquest by the white pioneers, or it's uh, Palestinians today being criticized for not uh, fighting Israel back in the correct manner uh, as they, uh, you know, resist occupation. So anyway, uh, I, I am wondering, you know, who are the folks who are uh, most um, enthusiastic about 
uh, establishing ethical ways of fighting the war. As a historian of, of the law, and I've only in the last uh, five or six years turned to international law and its history, uh, but as a historian of the law, I'm convinced that I'm going to find politics at the bottom of every legal institution. I, I, um, uh, international lawyers are often, not always, but often uh, wary of this, this observation. Uh, uh, it's important for many international lawyers, and for good reason, uh, that international law uh, uh, be respected as, uh, as, as, as law, uh, uh, and not merely, uh, merely politics. But I begin with the proposition that law is inevitably and always uh, importantly political. Um, when in the laws of war, we see, as in almost any field of law, huge contestation among all of the rival parties to try to push the laws in the direction that they think favors their, their side. Um, many of the, I mean, all of the multilateral treaties that make up the, 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 um, uh, the central documents in the laws of war are, doc, are, are treaties agreed to by uh, the powerful states of the world. It would be extraordinary to find the powerful states of the world putting themselves in an, a, a much, much, much more difficult situation than they would like to be in. We wouldn't, that, would be, that would be against one common, ordinary intuition. On the other hand, since the last 10, 15, 20 years, many of those powerful states have come to see in the laws of war something that they think the weak can use against them. This is the laws of war as a weapon of the weak, a weapon that allows uh, a weak, um, a, a, a weaker uh, constituencies, weaker uh, uh, fighting forces to put limits on the power of the strong. So um, uh, certainly the case that uh, the laws of war oftentimes privilege the kinds of tactics that uh, um, uh, powerful armies can use. Think of the uniform wearing requirements, which are hotly contested uh, for the last three decades now. Um, but but um, uh, so in some sense, uh, empowering the strong. But in some sense, uh, um, think of the way proportionality analysis uh, may well, very plausibly, create different kinds of requirements for powerful states that can use uh, smart bombs and other kinds of very precisely targeted uh, um, uh, weaponry um, that might not attach to a fighting force that doesn't have remotely doesn't doesn't have access to that kind of technology. So, so uh, lots and lots of politics. Um, uh, and shifting, sh uh, I think, sort of historically contingent structure uh, of, of the way in which um, uh, we should expect to see the laws of war privileging certain uh, constituencies and others. Um, yeah. Question on your right. Hi, my name is Corey Rosella. My question is, how do you see uh, President Obama's choice to continue with military commissions in Guantanamo as a function of uh, public discourse on moral reasoning? And do you see mm -hmm. that decision to continue as as an advancement either of humanity or justice? So, um, uh, you know, uh, as, as always, more comfortable in the 19th century, but, but here's, here's, the, here's the, I mean, I think here's the, the, um, the analogy w w would be to say that um, what, so the difference, so, so if, if Obama and Bush have actually looked quite similar in the kinds of policy outcomes we see, uh, uh, predator drones, more now than there were before. Uh, renditions, apparently continuing. Guantanamo, still there. Uh, military commissions reopening. The, the difference between the strongest early versions, let's call these the John Yu versions of, um, of uh, Bush policy, and what we've seen under Obama, is that uh, the Obama administration has argued more self-consciously from within, from within the tradition. So uh, the opening, reopening of military commissions uh, the other day, accompanied by a series of uh, um, com uh, commitments 
to, uh, uh, to contemporary international humanitarian law. Um, uh, and an attempt to operate from within the structure, as opposed to the most extreme early, uh, sort of initially secret memos written by you, which said we can do this outside, uh, outside of, of the international law tradition. So that I think is what I would describe as the um, as the the um, uh, the difference between the two. And and the you might take away the 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 the, 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 um, uh, the, the lesson that this difference is actually really important because it's a decision to engage it, to engage the framework of moral reasoning about these kinds of problems that has been the, the, the tradition of arguing about and talking about and making sense of these kinds of grave problems for the last uh, 200 years and not to jettison it uh, and to, to employ it as a moral framework. Now, that's not to say that it's not subject to all sorts of manipulation since, of course, it is. It's not subject to all sorts of argumentation since, of course, it is. And one of the problems that international law has that, um, I mean, you know, initially I wrote about tort law. These are car accidents. So, so we had car accidents and every other kind of accident. So, so but the, one of the great advantages tort law has is that it comes up all the time in low stakes cases. There's, you know, a car, two cars, fender bender out here. It produces a case. A judge is going to hear the case. There's no political pressure that's going to rise out of the ordinary uh, uh, car accident. And so you get a thick body of law that gets to re reproduce itself out of these quotidian everyday cases. The laws of war just don't get to do that. Uh, and, and, and as a result, it's much more subject to contestation and, um, uh, and, and reconfiguration. So I don't, ha don't want to say that having identified the, the, the framework, the moral vocabulary for talking about these kinds of problems, we've solved the problem. There's going to be a huge amount of contestation within that language for talking about these things, a kind of contestation that I think will, be, will make that law more indeterminate than the car accident outside. Uh, but I think it's an important difference between uh, uh, Obama and Bush. Uh, my question is if you can elaborate on the type of conduct that uh, Scott's councils of war found offensive mm -hmm. and the extent to which that made its way into the Hague Convention, the Geneva Conventions, even our own Uniform Code of Military Justice? Well, one of the interesting features of the councils of war uh, is that some of the conduct um, was only questionably in violation of the customary laws of war as they existed in the 1840s. William Jay, the... Uh, son or grandson, I should know that one, the son or grandson of John Jay, the founding father. William Jay is a leading member of the peace societies of the 1840s. Um, uh, and Jay looks at Scott's uh, military commissions and his councils of war, and he says, these are completely outrageous. You are treating the other side's tactic as criminal conduct when it's actually just soldiers, Mexican soldiers, jumping out from behind bushes and killing Union, uh, United States soldiers, um, uh, but there's no, there's no violation, there's no killing of civilians there. The Mexican Teamsters said Jay, well, that's, that's Mexico's own business. It may be horrific, but that's, that's their criminal punishment for uh, um, uh, Mexicans who, on their view, have engaged in treason. So some of the conduct is conduct that only questionably uh, uh, crossed over a line. Other conduct seems relatively clearly to have crossed over the conventional lines that existed in the 1840s. So, for example, um, uh, 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 taking stragglers and executing them after they tried to surrender. Uh, that, that, that's a classic uh, council of war violation. Uh, and sometimes horribly mutilating the bodies, leaving them in ways that were designed to intimidate uh, American soldiers who would find them uh, along, along the roadside. So, so there's, the, there's, the, there's the execution uh, in place of taking prisoner. That's a classic a violation type. Um, but then there's a lot of gray area, which is also being criminalized, um, uh, aggressively criminalized, maybe, maybe too aggressively. In the, in the 19th century, was there any 
overt or implied racial implications for pursuing this as opposed to just focusing on the tactics that they found kind of barbarous? The, um, uh, the, the, the laws of war are, um, I mean, not just a, a mirror of 19th century racial views, they're also a mechanism for reproducing 19th century racial views and the categories that international law more generally creates, categories that sharply distinguish the savage uh, from the barbarian, from the civilized. I mean, there's really an extraordinary taxonomy of different kinds of peoples and the kinds of, of entitlements in the international uh, scene that they, that they, that they are, that they are warranted. Um, uh, the laws of war follow this international law distinction between the civilized on the one hand and the savage and the barbarian on the other quite quite closely. Um, the savage and the barbarian are not entitled to the laws of war, the law of war's protections. Now, formally, the the Mexican commissioned soldier is is squarely within the civilized warfare uh, um, paradigm. So there's, there's the Mexican commissioned soldier can break the laws of war, but so long as he's in uniform fighting uh, uh, in battles, he's entitled to the laws of wars, the law of war's protections. Um, it appears that racial considerations played a huge role at the volunteer militia level in licensing a culture of depredations. Uh, there's a really wonderful book published just a couple years ago by an important historian of 19th century warfare named Mark Neely, who's made his name on the Civil War, but has now turned to the Mexican War. And his, the focus of that book is on the, the, um, uh, the racial views of American volunteer militia in Mexico. One of the, the, um, uh, one of the interesting features of this is that in West Point officers' descriptions of their own volunteer militia. We see the racial categories get reproduced. So uh, Meade, Meade knows, this is uh, um, uh, George Gordon Meade, uh, one day commander of the Army of the Potomac in the Civil War. Meade knows that his volunteers are acting in outrageous ways, and he knows this by describing them as acting like Indians. My volunteers are acting like Indians. Uh, um, uh, um, a, a, a prominent New Orleans resident who goes to Mexico as a kind of war correspondent uh, goes and describes uh, the U.S. volunteers he sees there as acting like servile Negroes. That's the language he uses. And so the racial categories are deeply embedded in thinking about conduct in, um, uh, in, in, uh, in warfare, even where formally this is supposed to be a war where both sides are at last, from the West Point perspective, at last, civilized combatants. Uh, thank you very much for your last uh, answer. Um, I think it's really great when someone can help an audience realize that we tend to look backwards and through history as opposed to getting back to what the attitudes were at the, at the time. So my question is really a 19th century question followed by how it plays out in the 20th century. Uh, in the same generation as these people you're talking about, you also have in Europe uh, the phenomenon of a man named Henri Denon in Switzerland, formation of the eventual International Committee of the Red Cross and all of those influences. And it seems that that European tradition, um, so I, I want to know if the, the, were these guys aware of this? Because when you talk about international humanitarian law, you are definitely, things are very streamed from a very United States, American point of view. Yet mm -hmm. I know that in play were many, many other forces in, in addressing the same question from a different cultural viewpoint. Um, I would say that subsequent to that, in the European tradition and the tragedy of World War I and World War II, 
the Europeans got much more obsessed with the protection of individual rights, the rights of uh, prisoners of war, and the actual listing of rights, and going on and on about that. And I'm wondering, for the 20th century part of this question, do you see that there's a sort of insularity of the American attitude that is not able to quite grasp how international, how global the Geneva Conventions are, for example, uh, comments in the Bush II era about the quaintness of these laws mm. that really came into existence because of the death of 50 million people in World War II, and the sort of uh, glib way of really disregarding rights that seems to be something we're caught up in at the moment as a nation. You, my, my friend and former colleague Eric Foner likes to say that a, a nation that doesn't remember its history, history may not tell you what to do exactly at any particular moment, but a nation that can't remember its history is like an amnesiac walking around. I mean, it's like a, a, a person who can't possibly make reasoned decisions on the basis of the kind of information that we all use to make decisions all the time. So the history, 19th century and 20th, I think is, um, is, uh, uh, is hugely important. There is a certain amount of, of, of um, uh, uh, parochial Americanness uh, in the American history of the laws of war, and I'm sure also in my recounting of the American history of the laws of war. The, uh, when the, Geneva, the first Geneva Convention, which was created in 1864, uh, inspired by Dunant and, and, and others, um, is a convention created without uh, an official American representative. There are American uh, um, uh, uh, experts from the, the Sanitary Commission, uh, uh, the United States Sanitary Commission, go to talk about what it is the United States is doing during the U.S. Civil War, but the Lincoln administration can't find uh, the time or the reason to send um, uh, official representation to uh, um, uh, to the Geneva Conventions of 18, uh, the Conventions 63 and, the, and, and signed 64, even though there are characters in the United States who desperately want to be the official U.S. representatives to, um, uh, to Geneva in 1864. And then it takes the United States 20 years to enter into uh, the first uh, Geneva Conventions. So certainly a kind of, a kind of, um, a kind of uh, insularity that, that's, definitely, uh, that's definitely there. You know, there's an interesting uh, question about the... Um, the relate, in the 20th century, and now this is, um, this is like a future book or something, this book someone else should, other than me should write, but the 20th century, the problem, and this is one of the, the I, I think in the second half of the 20th century, this is the, 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 the problem. I don't know that the Geneva Conventions of 1949 are usefully described as a response to the... Um, uh, um, uh, to what happens in World War II. No doubt, and, and, and the Holocaust, no doubt much of it is, but the, the folks who imagine themselves as responding most directly are the people who are creating the United Nations and creating the Charter of the United Nations and banning warfare altogether. And so in 1948, in the run-up to 1949, uh, when the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, people reach out to the United Nations and say, we're going to have another convention, we're going to update the laws of war, the, the UN response is to say, why are you doing that? We just abolished this. This is not happening. What are you doing? And in fact, you might legitimate the return, the restoration of this barbaric practice that, like slavery, has now been abolished. Um, so so, so the, the, um, uh, uh, in some ways, the, the, the 49 Geneva Conventions are carrying on a pre-war, pre-World War II um, uh, tradition into the post-World War II period, and in some ways are, are, frozen, are frozen by the Cold War. So that I think much of the controversy that happens in the 21st century over the, the, a particular form of the laws of war, that is to say the international humanitarian law that governs the conduct in war, because that's what I've been talking about today, uh, and that's what much of the controversy has been over, torture, prisoner of war, 
um, uh, 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 detention, things like this. That controversy has resurged after the Cold War moment, after a moment in which first war was, uh, um, the, uh, the project was to abolish war altogether, uh, and then the project was to avoid uh, um, uh, uh, hot wars for fear that they would destroy the world. And, and, and now we see a return to a pre-World War II uh, uh, concern that is regulating the conduct within war. So thank you.